Hello, welcome to another episode of Scuttlebutt. I'm Nick. I'm here with Vic. Hey. I'm here with William. Howdy. I'm here with our special guest today, Chief Warrant Officer for Denise Barnes. Hey. Uh, we're going to And we're also going to give you a applaud for uh, your recent retirement from the Marine Corps. Congratulations. Or, or should we? Uh, thank you so much. Congratulations on retirement, but we're sad you're out, I think, right? Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. No, yeah. it's definitely about, a hit to the Marine Corps, yeah. but, you know, Aww. we can't all play and have fun. Forever, right? Whichever ah. emotion we want to feel right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. All right. So, sorry, we just had a, a visitor from outside. All right. So, uh, Vic, I don't know if you want to take this away right now. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah. So, as we stated, uh, we're here with uh, Chief Warrant Officer 4, recently retired Denise Barnes. Thank you again <laughs> so much for being here. Um, so, we were had a really, actually, really great sort of pre-show introduction and so i apologize for making you rehash some of the stuff you already talked about but your journey to the marine corps before you even get into the just the absolute unique and amazing things you did in your career um can we talk a little bit about how it was you came to be in in uniform um because i think it's a very unique uh journey as well uh, thanks again for having me today. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I was born in Trinidad and Tobago. I always say and Tobago because tr- there's a Trinidad in Colorado and people get confused. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. So in the Caribbean, that Trinidad, <laughs> yeah. right? So uh, mom had me young at 17. Uh, and when I was two years old, uh, she came to America to, you know, work, establish a career and make it easy to pave the way uh, for me to migrate as well and eventually earn uh, American citizenship. So the big focus was on education. So once my mom got situated, I wasn't allowed to come to America right away because the schooling in Trinidad is a little bit uh, more technical, a little bit more advanced. Um, So I was required to finish school first. So I was proud. I went to uh, the only all-girls college in the Caribbean, St. Francois Girls College. Um, And at 17, uh, in 1989, I uh, migrated to America. Um, So just, you know, working odd little jobs here and there. Um, Had to do two years of high school. Um, But eventually I moved on and did two years of college at Montclair State University. Um, But then, uh, because of some health issues with mom, I took a quick little break. But then I wanted to go back to college, wanted to finish, and I wanted to establish a career. Uh, so I ran into uh, someone that I ran track with in high school and college, and he became a Marine, and he just told me about the college, you know, the free medical and dental care and paycheck twice a, uh, twice a month. And I'm like, all right, where do I go? Sign <laughs> me up, right? So, uh, so that was it. So in March of 96, uh, I made that decision um, to join the Marine Corps. My only regret is that I didn't do that sooner. Yeah, so at yeah. 24, I uh, decided to... You know, to wear the cloth. So, so and where did you uh, where did you first enter in? Were you in because you said you went to uh, Montclair in Jersey? So, were you right. in New York, New Jersey area at the time before you joined? Oh, I was in New Jersey, so I Jersey. joined okay. from New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Okay, and how was that transition? Being seventeen, like you like you were saying, um, you know, the schooling's a little bit more uh, advanced, a little more regimented. You get two years of high school, which had to feel like almost a step <laughs> back at that point, right? Because, I mean, you're already done. You'd already passed all of your um, college entrance exams in Trinidad and Tobago. So now you're going back to high school in New Jersey. What was that like? 
at times it was cool, you know, because <laughs> the environment is different, you know. And but at the same time, you're hearing where are you from? What country? That's not a country. Like you <laughs> yeah. got an accent. Like we don't know what you're saying, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So you dealt with that. But I was good at gaffing people off. So uh, <laughs> yeah. what's funny is too, like if you're in New Jersey, you can't understand anything they say either, right? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Let's talk about a language barrier. <laughs> I can't even understand what half the yeah. time people say from Jersey. <laughs> Which we love everybody, all of our listeners yeah. from New Jersey. We absolutely love you. It's just, <laughs> we just you can't know. understand you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but overall, it was a great experience. I just said to myself, this is a requirement. Um, can't go crazy with it. Just do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Very cool. And so um, can you talk a little bit about your time in boot camp then? Because I think <laughs> your outlook <laughs> – on boot camp is very unique or even of america you go straight and then you go to american high school and then you go to like a part american college and then like the marine corps which is an entirely different subculture within the united states yeah so the thing is growing up in trinidad we we don't focus focus on ourselves we don't it's not all about me right so we we work hard Nothing is given to us. We don't expect that. We help the less fortunate. We, you know, we're very courteous and we're warm and it's that brother and sister relationship and we're big on family. So that prepared me for the way of life in the Marine Corps, right? Um, and with us, we just serve with so much pride. People from the islands just serve with so much pride. So going to boot camp, I enjoyed it. I liked it because, <laughs> you know, I wanted to showcase you know, my talents and how proud I was to have that opportunity to serve, to establish a career and uh, and do well. So for me, it was just learning as much as I can. And uh, it was it was great because I ended up having such a great rapport with two of our drill instructors. And to, to today, we still are very much in touch. My daughter has gifts from them still that they made by hand. So um, it was very rewarding, and th- again, the only regret I have is that I didn't do that sooner. But and then, yeah. what was so uh, for all of our younger listeners then, like having more of that life experience? And you said you ran track in college, right? So as far as like preparation is concerned, I would imagine that you probably felt pretty ready to go. Like you didn't, like you mentioned in the pre-show, like it wasn't a lot of you didn't have like think about it like hey I need you're you're ready to do this thing and then sort of being a little longer in the tooth then amongst you know kids who are you know 18 19 years old what was that experience like for you it was great I mean my recruiter was great he just repeated uh he explained a lot of things exactly how boot camp would be he said look it's three months, the yelling and all that crazy stuff. Just <laughs> ignore it. You know, just do good. I know you'll do good. And uh, and he just prepared me for that stuff. So at 24, and even now, you know, I'll be 51 this year, and I don't do the age thing. Well, oh, I'm getting old. No, 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 no. <laughs> age is just a number, That's you right. know, because coming up through the Marine Corps, my belief, my view was if I joined at 24 and I chose to stay, I have to exceed Marine Corps requirements. I don't like meeting requirements. I like to exceed them. So for me, even in my mid-40s, you know, my goal was I'm going to beat one male Marine <laughs> on that PFT and CFT, <laughs> yeah. right? But uh, so I just just always serving with pride and wanting to do um, good, you know? That's so cool. Yeah. I, and I, I think that 
there's a there's an immigrant story there for sure. Um, maybe we talked a little bit too. You know, uh, having come from a refugee family, there is this sense of like I I got to give back, and then I'm also in a way as un- unfair or unfair. Like I am also representing yeah. in a certain degree as well. Like there is a little bit more of a microscope there. At least you feel that inside. Um, so there's there's that drive. Um, and so, like you were saying then, so when you came in, it was just all about being a Marine. You just wanted to wear the uniform. How did you end up then in uh, working with um, corrections. The, the correction yeah. facilities or the, the yeah. confinement facilities, yeah. the brigs, basically? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I joined, I didn't ask the recruiter for a specific MOS. I just felt whatever job I was assigned that I would work hard and make sure I did my part every day. So then they told me, hey, you got the corrections MOS. And I'm like, great, um, because for a very short time in New Jersey, I worked at the um, Esmore Detention Center. So mm. we would pick up illegal immigrants from the airport and house them until they had hearings and then were typically returned. Mm. The amount that were allowed to stay in America was extremely small. So um, so with that experience, maybe they saw that and chose to give me uh, corrections. But I certainly enjoy the field. Um and it's very rewarding, uh, you know, because when you look at it, the job is challenging, you know. Sometimes For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can only imagine. Yeah. yeah, you got some prisoners that get it. Hey, I messed up. Let me just do what I got to do and go home. And then you got the other ones who want a lot of attention. They'll lash out and do things, even though it negatively affects them. So. Mm. Um, yeah, so I just told a recruiter to sign me up for whatever and uh, got corrections. So. And then I guess fast forwarding then, you were one of two Chief Warrant Officer 4s in the confinement facilities MOS, correct? Right. So um, in the... I, th- I think there's one more, like, female, right? Like, there we go. That's what I'm saying, one, right, one, right, of, right. Two. Yeah. one yeah. of two, yeah. Yeah, right. you didn't, I don't think you said Oh, did I, I just yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, like, I'm sure there's two. a lot of CWO4s running around. Not only two Chief Warrant like, Officer 4s, yeah. there are two female <laughs> Chief Warrant Officer 4s. Yeah, yeah. There's probably yeah. plenty of Chief Warrant Officer 4s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so, yeah, so females, just for a very quick uh, brief on uh, females. Females did not come into the corrections world until the mid to late 80s, right? So... Um, it started with them bringing over female MPs to the correction mm. side. So my retiring official, who I just love to death, Miss Kate Toscano, Chief One Officer Three, United States Marine Corps, retired. Uh, she was the first female brig seal we we ever had, and she was the first uh, one of the first female that came into the uh, into the field. So, and I believe she was a senior one that retired as a chief one officer three, but she did 20 years of service. So there's no doubt she would have probably been the first one. So Karen DeMora, um, another Marine I just loved, uh, <laughs> she's currently the CEO at the Brigham Camp Pendleton. We both got selected in uh, 2019, and that was the first time in the history of the Marine Corps uh, corrections field that uh, females attain the rank of Chief Horn Officer 4. So I hope we're not the last. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely uh, a great feeling. We just worked hard, and uh, we just stayed the course, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess to echo some of the sentiments of uh, the Commandant and, the, and ACMAC, I mean, it's like based off of your guys' performance, we, we are a, we're in the business of needing talent. Right. Talent management is a major thing. And so, yeah, I don't only hope 
that uh, there are more in the future, but I think that's a call to action that we need talented people to be in places where they can thrive. Um, And I think that's it, like period. You don't have to quantify that any further, right? Right. Uh, I tell you, it's, you know, and I tell Marines, I said, there, there are no shortcuts, right? A lot of people looked for them before and couldn't find any. Mm-hmm. You just have to work hard. You know you got to exceed standards. And your character, your decision-making, your judgment, those things are vital, especially um, when you have high-profile prisoners in a facility or other things are going on and you have to make decisions or recommend things to your chain um, on the installation. So those things are very important. Um, we will definitely, I want to definitely touch on some of these high profile cases, uh, that you just alluded to, but I do want to also, I don't want to, um, be, uh, obtuse to the realities though, being one of a very, uh, one of a very select few, of Marines in this MOS, female Marines in this MOS, what was that like, um, was it as awesome as we like to think? Like, hey, we're all Marines, we're all wearing uniforms? Or was there, were there some challenges coming up through the ranks? I mean, at times, you know, there were challenges. But the correctional, the corrections field as a whole is, is one of the smallest MOS mm-hmm. in the Marine sure. Corps. So yeah. we, you know, typically there's good rapport. But I'll give you a quick example, right? So I'm checking into the brig at Camp Lejeune. And uh, 99, I'm a little corporal, you know, and uh, so I check in. The gunnery sergeant, when I say good morning, gunnery sergeant, I'm, you know, Corporal Barnes, I'm checking in. His first question was, can you PT? I didn't get asked how I'm doing, (laughs) how my trip was, do I have dependents, am I getting situated, what do I need from him? And um, I looked at him, I was very respectful because at 24 years old, (laughs) 27 I should say, it's, uh, you just bite your tongue. And I said, Yes, gunnery sergeant, and then I told him what my PFT score was, which I later learned that uh, it was way higher than his. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm about to say. Yeah, so, you know, and then sometimes, uh, like fast forward several times, uh, several years, uh, so I was a CO at Lejeune at that brig, and uh, so the Marine on the quarter deck signing in visitors called me because somebody had a question, right? So I come up to the quarter deck. It was a major, I think, um, so I came up, I was very polite, introduced myself. I said, hey, good afternoon, I'm Chief Front Officer Barnes, I'm the CEO, what can I help you with today? And he, he stopped, like he stared, then he leaned to the right <laughs> and looked around me, then he turned around and looked behind him, and I'm like, so I leaned in that direction, <laughs> right? And I said, yes, I'm the CEO, uh, yeah. what can I do for you today? So it was just so un- uncommon that... You right. typically don't see female brig CEOs, right? And I think, honestly, that that's just what it was. So when you have that expectation, somebody calls for the CEO, you expect to see a male Marine. So mm. Karen and I kind of shattered that. Yeah, but, right, um, yeah. But in general, um, I've had support, right, um, from senior enlisted officers in the field. And for somebody like Kate, who retired me on Friday, like I told the Marines, um, during my ceremony, I said, when we talk about mentorship, <clears throat> that is something we are very serious about. So what you're seeing today is mentorship from 1999, from from me being a corporal, all the way to chief one officer four. Uh, she retired 20 years ago. So I tell people, I said, when we say Semper Fidelis, 
we mean it. Right, mm-hmm. right. I can always talk to her about anything, any topic. And, of course, she was concerned, well, you are a senior to me. Am I allowed to retire you? And I said, yes, you are. You know, because in General Dumford's case, his brother retired him. So, Mm -hmm. um, and it was great. So that was the biggest thing for me, you know, is just um, taking in all the support when I got it. And when I didn't get it, I just gaffed it off. And uh, I just used that as fuel to drive me even harder. Yeah. It was so cool. Did you find yeah. that, I, I just kind of just jumping in the correctional f- a bit about this, was there like layers to you kind of uh, getting, uh, I don't want flack from outside? So like first you like, oh, everyone in the correctional is okay, but then there's people on the outside, yeah, but that's a tiny MOS. Like, of course they could move women up through there. Like, was there any of that? Or was you mean that like institutionally? Yeah, like institutionally, yeah. like um, infantry guys or something, like not giving you the respect you deserved or something. No, I think in general, people don't understand the full scope of corrections, right? Yeah. So for the infantry guys who deployed and had corrections with them in Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, for them it's like, oh, y'all do like other stuff because we typically don't deploy frequently. So, you know, they just don't have the full understanding. So in the other sense, if a unit can find somebody, by the time we explain all the rules, all their requirements, it's like, whoa, this is a lot. Yeah, they got to yeah. come visit every week. If the prisoners want to go to the bank five times a week, guess what? The unit got to take care of that stuff. So I just think in general, um, there's not a full understanding of the corrections field. And then even on the civilian side, you know, you have prisoner supporters or their attorneys just saying whatever. So they always feel like we don't do things right, like, oh, we're abusing them or we're punishing them. Mm-hmm. And they don't even know the rules. They don't know the facts. And, of course, we we can't, you know, say anything and tell them what the truth is. So, um, so in general, you know, you get a mixture of uh, that MOS, oh, okay, I guess they just lock people up and not understand the full breadth of it because for post-trial prisoners, we have to help prepare a, a program plan them to follow to enable them to have a smooth transition and hopefully not um you know not repeat their mistakes so the recidivism rate is something we work um to try to lower if we can mm. right so it's not so much oh just throw them in the brig we'll come get them upon release no, no, <laughs> yeah. No, no. yeah it's a yeah. team effort it's the brig staff it's the unit it's the chaplain it's the social worker so it's everybody yeah. working uh, together so it is still semper fidelis even when yeah. a marine is broken yeah. from maybe the you know the tenets of what that means everybody else is still upholding it we're always faithful yeah we take care of them, even yeah. regardless of what yeah. the crime is. No matter so. how big of a pain in the <laughs> ass that might be, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's just talk a little bit about it. Um, you know, having been, um, you know, an AM tracker with deployments, I still knew very little about the brig other than I got a guy who needs to go and then pass him off to battalion. And the battalion yeah. coordinates everything. Um, and like you said, you do your regular visits or whatever, but I mean, I I think even through most of my career, I thought that that was just a, a facet of PMO. I didn't even think I realized until I was like a captain or a major that that it's its own MOS. Right. So can we talk a little bit about what it is that you guys do? And you talked about going on deployments. Would you guys deal with, um, enemy, um, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, prisoners that would, they would take in, that they were detained, or was it only Marines that you guys deal with? No. So on these deployments, um, we had back then, because I was fortunate enough to get one deployment in in 2009. I deployed with uh, 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines. They told me it's America's battalion. That's what they said. <laughs> there you go. But uh, so... And my job then was the detentions evaluation and assessment uh, officer and program officer in charge, right? So uh, we had two things. We would, uh, I would oversee the treatment and the management of the, you know, the detainees in Mm -hmm. the facilities that they had. But I would also travel and look at the detainee collection points, right? So we had to make sure, did they have rugs to pray? Did they have the Quran? Are they being treated well? And things like that. So for us, um, you may not find us out in the front engaging in in live fire with the infantrymen side by side unless some exception was made. But um, typically, um, you know, it'll be going out, um, collecting detainees, making assessments. So there were occasions where I would, um, you know, I would go on a convoy just to see how the detainees were treated when they had to re- take them from, you know, the brig, uh, the detention facility back to some place upon release. So the handoff, all mm-hmm. these things are so important. So, of course, it's, um, you know, tensions are a little high and you want to make sure, hey, we get this handoff done properly and we get back. Uh, so typically um, we we just were big on making sure that, those detainees were treated well and they got to where they needed to be. Yeah, I think I would definitely want to want to drill down on this because it's not just like hey, tuck and roll out of the back of an yeah. MRAP once you get <laughs> right. released, right? Like right. there is a a very deliberate and intentional process the things yeah. and we see what happens. I was in Afghanistan with RCT5 um when uh I wanted then I I've got a horrible memory, uh, but I fr- I don't think it was Dwyer's, um, but it was one of the camps mm-hmm. where the debt fac was basically cleaning stuff out and getting rid of some of the, you know, bringing in new things, new prayer rugs, new Qurans, and then they very just weren't paying attention to what they were disposing of, and they put a bunch of Qurans in the burn pit. And, of course, the local workers – Saw that happening and things went absolutely bonk, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah. And so this is that sort of thing where it's like this f- extremely deliberate, detailed process that a lot of people just aren't paying attention to. Yeah, and that's so important. And one of the things we reinforced, um, especially when we got in, into country, was hey, the cultural classes we got prior to deployment, you got to abide by those. So, for example, with the cultural differences with females being in a pow- in a position of power mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. detainees. So we didn't allow females when to guard the uh, the detainees with their weapons like pointing down at them while they were seated or something like that. So it's little things like that that you're cognizant of and and you you make the adjustments. You know, you don't uh, sacrifice the mission, but you make you know, you try your best to to do the mission well and not cause that uproar, yeah. you know. So yeah. mm-hmm. reinforcing, like you said, the prayer rugs, the Quran, um, these are just things you don't just throw away or just toss it aside or not, you know, um, treat it 
in a similar mm-hmm. manner that yeah. in a similar manner that uh, they do. And it's a force multiplier. I mean, we had at one point so many <laughs> detainees going in and into the DEFAC um, just for the nature of where we are and the nature of the tactile environment. Yeah, we we had a lot of people going away, and even at one point when we were doing the the handover. They were like, where where are you guys exactly? Like, why are we seeing yeah. you guys so much? Um, but I will tell you, when we would get folks back, the way that they were treated would literally change the topography mm-hmm. of what was going on because it was this, you know, it was very easy for Al Qaeda to tap into this narrative that we yeah. were uh, crusaders, that we hated, you know, we we're Islamophobic. Um, that we're here to occupy the country because we want to make it a Christian country. You know, all of these right. narratives that were being used against us. And so when you would actually get these detainees who would come back and say, like, yeah, that wasn't awesome, but they treated me great. Yeah. It changed the narrative big time. Oh, yeah. And that's something Marine Corps Corrections is absolutely proud of. And that's something we will always uh hold our heads up high about we never had an Abu Ghraib situation right you mm-hmm. never heard of Marine Corps Corrections doing that stuff because for us I'll be honest even in Garrison we know just like prisoners we're subject to the UCMJ right and I've seen it in my career where we had staff members locked up now in the Marine Corps we'll lock you up in the same brig where you work <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the Navy do it a little different but no we don't tuck you away in another facility or anything we no, you will get locked up in the same facility you just where get you di- work. You get a different parking spot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the thing is, so I tell people that's a good thing because when prisoners see that staff members are locked up, um, that is, it reinforces when people like me, seals like me, tell them staff and prisoners get held accountable here. Mm-hmm. Nothing is brushed under the rug, right? So I remember going to... Uh, <laughs> So after boot camp and MOS school, we had a blast in San Antonio, Texas, right? So we all get to Quantico because they told us, hey, about nine or ten of the staff members pop positive for drugs. They will get um, separated. So unless you're the honor grad, you're going to Quantico. You have no choice, right? So we get to Quantico, and um, and it was great for me. I'm close to home, right? Yeah, yeah. So a guy that we went to MOS school with that was fun, he decided he was going to make prisoners do inverted push-ups. A prisoner slipped and broke his collarbone. Mm. He didn't die or anything, but the point is is that we watched him go from brand-new staff member, not even two years, to being a prisoner in that brig. He had a summary court-martial and was given 30 days, and he got out. And I was a CEO in Lejeune. We had a staff member that was abusing his wife, not taking care of things at home and um, abusing his kids, he was confined. So at the end of the day, um, it's just really important that people see prisoners too, that everybody gets held accountable. Yeah. You know, so again, I'm just super proud that we've always had that reputation. We might be fur, we might toe that line, we might just, hey, discipline, structure, this is how we do it, do it the right way. Um, and not have an Abu Ghraib or a bunch of escapes and, and right. or suicides mm-hmm. on the watch, right? And I remember as a young Marine in Quantico, my first duty station, prisoners used to get an ironing board and iron to iron their prisoner 
uniforms because every Friday they would get inspected, haircut, shave, hygiene, the cell, everything. And that is an inspection they get every Friday. The pride I saw in those prisoners' faces, it just reinforced, you know what, I love what I do, and we're doing the right thing. Because they realize you don't get to wear the camis anymore. Right. So the prisoner uniform is all they have, and they still took pride in that. And, I mean, you would look at this the the seam, like the crease in the sleeve, and it could cut somebody. They just took that much pride, right? Yeah. And, I mean, we did away with the ironing board and all that stuff. But, again, just seeing the prisoners take the pride in rolling the sleeves. The sleeves are, like, dead on, like, perfect. Right, right. It, you know, just kind of shows kind of doing the right thing. Yeah. Are those all. sleeves matching up with uh, when they tell her the Marine Corps sends out the message to roll up and roll down? Was that behind bars too yeah Yeah. so and then so then they also had short sleeve um tops yeah so then when a time we they were issued coats as well so we made sure we took care of it and then how about uh officer um confinement does that do they have are they in within the general populace is that even the right term general populace or do they have their own sort of wing area no so by the second of instruction that we follow, you know, prisoners are evaluated when they come in. So there's nothing that says, oh, an officer has to be absolutely by himself and away from everybody else. They'll go to general population, right? Okay. So, again, if they don't have a history of ass- of assaults um, or anything, because there's a lot of criteria we look at, prior assaults, the seriousness of the alleged charges, uh, we look at all those things. Um, so when there's, because initially when everybody gets confined, they'll go into uh, restrictive housing and, you know, get indoctrination classes. So they know all the rules, they'll get classes on everything. Right. And then they take a test, they pass it. Then we put them in general population, unless there are factors that require them to stay in restricted housing. So with officers, I've seen officers in general population and they're treated the same. So one of those criteria isn't rank. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the the unique thing is whenever an officer is getting confined, the, typically the brig CO goes in, and we don't get in the middle of the receiving and release process where they're strip searched like everybody else, mm-hmm. where I, their items are inventoried and the stuff they're not allowed to have is returned to the unit. But typically, in the very beginning before anything starts, the brig CO will go in and have a little chat with them and s- introduce themselves and say, hey, look, you're not an officer in here. You're in pretrial status. You don't rate a salute. Nobody will call you sir. And you don't direct any actions on staff or prisoners while you're confined, period. There are no exceptions. So they learn early in the game that before getting confined, you, you did whatever. But while in confinement, it's no sir or he's an officer or she's yeah. an officer. Nope. So and then at the end of the receiving and res- uh, relief and the receiving process before they get sent to the ha- um, back to the housing unit um, we come back in and ask did you have any issues are there any concerns that you have typically they'll say no and we'll say all right receiving and release you got them and that's it so so it's just so important that up front the rules are explained to them mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they know what to expect yeah mm-hmm. and then is that work as the same for pretrial confinement knowing that during their confinement time, obviously, once it goes to trial, they could be acquitted. And right. then, so, is there any nuances there for someone that 
may not actually be coming back? No, and we don't know that, okay. right? So the that's just a standard. Upon confinement, you will be respectful. You will follow orders. And I typically do a quick in-brief with, with the prisoners when I see them. So it may not be in the receiving process, but when I make the rounds, I'll talk to them uh, and explain those things. So whether they're pre-trial, post-trial, okay. doesn't matter. Okay. Yeah. So cool. Well, I guess bef- – I was going to move on to some of the high-profile stuff since we're talking corrections. Did you guys have anything? No, I want to go to the okay, yeah, high-profile stuff. I do, I do have one last. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, please. I don't know. It, it could dip into high-profile. I don't know. But, like, right. over your uh, over your long service time in the correction facility, how much does the outside world kind of infiltrate it? Like, does new commandant, new secretary of the Navy, new Congress, new president, anything like that ever come in and, like, change the rules or on you? Or new base CO, New base CO, yeah, like. No, so – Typically, we're so far down the chain, and we're just not at a level where it requires so much. And, again, it just goes back to we just do the basics, and we do it well, right? So the break CO is appointed in writing by the installation commander or their designee. And typically, you'll fall under that H&S battalion or security battalion. Uh, but we really don't have a ton of um, interference. So... Mm-hmm. Um, let me try to think of the last issue that I took a call from um, from the commandant's office a while back. Um, it was just asking about, um, I think it was probably um, the conditions um, in confinement, because somebody had got confined. I can't remember the, um, the exact story, but it was just him needing qu- basic questions answered, right? Because mm. they don't know. Hey, how does what happens when you have um, a ton of you know you're at capacity, or what happens when you have a prisoner with this? It was a high profile, and I'm sorry I can't remember, but yeah, at about eighteen hundred, almost eighteen hundred, one night got a call. Um, hey, CMC has some questions for you. Can you just <laughs> answer them? And and it was easy. Yeah. Uh, so so at the end of the day, we typically don't get a ton of interference you know unless it's some high profile thing or something playing out in the news so we work uh, with headquarters Marinko with the judge advocate division and um, so sometimes we'll give them a heads up if if we're made aware of some something being in the news we touch base with them and comstrat just to make sure hey i don't know if you guys are tracking this but this is what we're hearing are you familiar with that sometimes it'll it'll be yep we got word or no, we didn't know. Thanks for letting us know. And we'll we'll come back with questions for you. But typically, it's not a lot of uh, interference, though. Well, let's talk about one of those. <laughs> PFC Manning. Um, <laughs> for our listeners who may not be aware, uh, PFC Manning dumped thousands of classified files to, uh, was it Assange? WikiLeaks. Which kicked off a lot of... Uh, obviously churn in the news cycle um and he ended up under your charge is that correct that's correct so i was the second uh ceo there um you know while he was in confinement so and i really didn't have him for too long i believe it was four months before he was transferred by the army so with high profile prisoners we treat them the same we we, again, like I mentioned before, we're subject to the UCMJ, mm-hmm. right? So we're going to do it right. 
and then not only that, the prisoners communicate with family, with friends. So obviously they'll say, you know, hey, this is going on, that's going on. And sometimes it's not always true, but that's par for the course, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but with high-profile prisoners, the focus is doing things right. Now, sometimes we make little exceptions, and I'll give you the one thing we did specifically to his case. Typically when prisoners come in, we'll do a scars and marks when they um, are stripped down to identify, you know, bruises, injuries, whatever. We typically don't do that when they're released. But because of mm. things that were being said that we know weren't true and because of mannerisms and different things we observed, um, we did a scars and marks when he left. So whether it's him manipul possibly manipulating the handcuffs to bruise himself or just whatever, we just wanted to make it very clear that he came in and he left without a scratch on his body. Mm -hmm. So, but... In general, we we just follow the rules and we're consistent. And those are the things that uh, that help because people like me get called in to testify as I did and the staff as well. So because the trial took so long, we had all the staff, Air Force, Navy, Marines, come back to Maryland to testify. So it was a great reunion to see the staff because we had a great rapport, but um, not under those circumstances. So for me, some of the other things I reinforce is don't tune into the news all the time. Just try to ignore it because they're getting information either from family members, friends, the attorneys, mm -hmm. whatever. Right. And it's not always true. And we cannot speak out to detail things. And I'll give you a perfect example. Prisoners get the same Marine Corps birthday meal. They get the same Thanksgiving meal, Christmas meal that we get as staff. They eat the same food we eat, right, from the chow right. hall. So people don't understand that. And in his case, it came up, and people were like, wait a minute. He had steak and lobster? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it's just things like that that mm. they don't know about, and they just assume, oh, you don't treat them well. So with the staff... I keep it normal. I tell them, you know, I'm going to, you know, I love you. You know, I'm going to spoil you. And I bake. We have little, little barbecues at work. We do the normal things we do. I told him we're not going to stop. He's not going to be here forever. The protests and all these things, because the first one was on base. I told him, I said, you have to tune that stuff out and just continue to be the professionals that I love coming to work with every day. And so for me, it was always important to, to encourage them and motivate them. And then when the base commander or my boss would give compliments, um, I would quickly relay that to them. It could be 8 o'clock at night. I get it at 8 o'clock at night. Guess what? They're going to get told that, yeah, right? Yeah. So it, it's just real important that you keep the staff um, motivated and just focused on what we have to do and tune out the noise, mm -hmm. you know, in the papers, I noticed after the trial, like they drew very ugly pictures oh, of us. Oh, there's a lot and of hit pieces on there. Yeah. Oh yeah, I saw a couple of those. Oh <laughs> yeah, it's funny, right? Yeah. So we just tune it out, and I tell them, I said, we're still gonna be the best. Period. Yeah. Regarding the Chelsea Manning case, what were so there were you said there was protests like on base or in front of base or. Right. So. The first one happened before I took over, but I was told they came in through Quantico Town, and that's the issue. People could come in off the train, mm, and um, right. so that was addressed and taken care of. And then the the second one, it was at the front gate, and then, of course, the base commander at the time just said, hey, I don't want to see uniforms on the front gate, and they reinforced the lines uh, 
um, and where people can protest and things like that. So, and that's why it's so valuable having the support of the military police as well, because at times during uh, visits for Manning, um, I and I um, got the help of the MPs, right? So somebody can get on base, they have proof saying, hey, they're proof of visits, this and that. But at the end of the day, keeping my staff safe and the prisoners safe is just such a priority. So it's, like I said, it was just one of those situations where it can drain you really quickly. Mm -hmm. But I tell Marines, I said, we're going to do what we normally do. We work hard, we play hard. You know I'm going to bake things and cook for you. <laughs> it ain't going <laughs> to stop, right? But I also told them, hey, look, be cognizant, right? So when you're going home, switch the rods that you – I tell them to do the same things I did. Yeah, make yourself yeah. a hard target. That's right. right. Yeah. So modify the routes that you take to go home. Pay more attention because, honestly, we got calls. We were bombarded with, call, with calls. They would call every line in the brig all day long. It got so bad that we got approval from the GS-15 on base and COM to record every line in the facility except for the one they speak to the attorneys on because mm. obviously those can't be recorded, right? Mm -hmm. So when you get that approval and you record every phone call for every line in the brig but one, it's a huge task. So I'll give you an example of a voicemail message I got. Hey, Barnes. What do we need to do to get you to release Bradley Manning? Do we need to come to your house? Because we could arrange that. Dang. Oh, man. And oh. I'm like, do they know they're calling a government phone <laughs> on a military installation? Maybe not. So they would call. They would curse. They would say demeaning things. And I would tell the Marines, always be professional. Tell them you're going to hang up the phone. If they're not calling with a specific request, and then even with some of those requests, we cannot answer it. We protect the prisoners' rights every day. It was so bad that um, an NCIS agent was assigned to me and she had to come every Friday to get those recordings or any anything that happened out of the ordinary, phone calls or voicemails, and she would copy those. And um, But, yeah, we reported all threats. You know, they would say things like, we know you guys tour around the, 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 the building at night, and we do. We have sure. tours going mm -hmm. on. Um, obviously, we check defense you know are there issues with it or anything that can allow for an escape for somebody to come in so um so dealing with high profile prisoners it 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 can drain you but the rapport you have with the staff though you is so important and that's just something i pride it you know i took pride in my entire time is letting marines know i support you hey we we do it together and i was in your shoes so i know how it is yeah, that's crazy. What about any other high-profile case? I know we focused a little bit on the Manning issue, but anything else you could think of? Yeah, so uh, the one of the drill instructors who was uh, found guilty of abusing some recruits, specifically the Muslim uh, recruits, uh, a few years ago, he was locked up in, uh, in Lejeune. And, you know, he got 10 years. You know, he has a family, and... It's, it's so unfortunate because I think sometimes people don't realize other people hurt too. Sure. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, he was one that we got. Um, and it's amazing because you hear about the stuff they were found guilty of, what they were doing, putting recruits in the dryer, doing it, and yelling and this and that. And you get them in the brig, and I'm just doing my simple in-brief, and his eyes are tearing up. Hi, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And I'm like, it's a different environment. So mm -hmm. we don't abuse prisoners. 
Um, but at the end of the day, you realize, was it, you ask yourself, was yeah. it worth it, right? Yeah. So we got him. We also had the colonel with 36 years in, in the Marine Corps who got found guilty of multiple counts of um, conduct unbecoming, unauthorized absence, and abuse of a child. Um, but that that charge, abuse of a child, even though he found guilty and the convening authority approved that sentence, the Navy and Marine Corps Criminal Court of Appeal had issue with the abuse of a child. So that was pretty much overturned. So he doesn't, he got released from the brig pretty quick. He did not serve his 66 months and he does not have to register as a sex offender. So I'm, you know, I'm just giving the the facts. But yeah. um, so, and again, I tell the Marines, he's not going to be treated any different, right? He's not going to be referred to as colonel anything. It is going to be prisoner so-and-so, right? right? Mm -hmm. So um, that case was just... When you've been in for 36 years, you know a lot of people. A mm -hmm. lot of people talk, and yeah. it's just, it's really unfortunate. But again, in his defense, and for the, to set the record straight, that charge involving the child, they felt that there was not enough evidence to to, to convict him on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so with your experience, so I, I know that you have, obviously, uh, a lot of control, and it sounds like a lot of positive um, team uh, atmosphere with your staff. If you rewind your life and the time that you had worked um, at the dealing uh, with the um, the confinement of immigrants as they were being processed either in or out, how different is working with the prisoners? between the civilian side and the military side. So, you know, you've got a lot of oversight of your staff. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you can affect control there. What's it like then dealing with the general population? So with prisoners, um, I aim to have a good rapport with them, and that doesn't mean that I'm friends with them. It simply means that there's a very clear expectation, right? So typically when I take over as the brig commanding officer, I will have them in formation. I'll introduce myself and tell them what my expectations are, that they'll follow orders immediately when they're given. I will forward charges to their command when it's warranted, if they're not following instructions and being a problem for us. Um, I'll let them know they have my support. I don't brush things under the rug, whether it's for them or staff, that type of thing. But I also tell them what my expectations are for them, right? Mm -hmm. So that's real important to me to set that in the beginning stages. And then typically, you know, they prisoners have nothing but time, so they watch everything you do. So my battle rhythm every day was I'll come in, check my emails, nothing hot, okay, I'll go and talk to all the staff first, yeah, they're doing, uh, and then I'll go in the housing units and speak to the prisoners. And that was pretty much a daily thing. You know, just go in front of the cell, hey, good morning, how are you? Any questions or concerns for me? Um, everything good. Now, if they told me about something that happened, I always follow up, right? So they don't come directly to me for requests, of course. But if they tell me, ma'am, I'm going to put in a request for this, maybe it's extended visitation because they only get weekends and holidays for two hours each day. Um, but if they want a special visit, maybe in the week. You know, I had one that wanted to celebrate his fifth wedding anniversary. So he asked, can his wife come on Thursday and not the weekend because that was the day they got married or whatever. And I told him, he said, I'll put in the request. I said, okay. I said, but 
if the staff tells me that um, we can accommodate it that day and nothing else is going on, that's not a problem. But, of course, he was a prisoner that behaved well, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. So you can look at, uh, well, he did this, so I'm not, no. You, you give back to the prisoners. They have to see that when they behave themselves and they're respectful that we give something back, right? So the, um, and Again, I would walk around to each cell. I'll go out on the rec, on the rec compound. And the, I think one thing the prisoners realize is that they can't pin down when I come to work. Staff couldn't do it either. They can't <laughs> say, oh, she comes in every day like 7.45. Nope. I would come in late in the morning, super early in the morning. I would just come in at night on the weekends. And it's bad when the prisoners say, ma'am, you know it's Saturday, right? Yeah. And I'm yeah. like. Why are you questioning me? <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I always strive um, to have that report. And if it's issues with their unit, for example, and they want to request masks on the unit and file complaints, I make sure that the staff helps them with that stuff. So I'll give you just one quick example. Um, a prisoner was told, hey, you need to fast because medical got stuff to do the next day. So at 1800, he didn't need anything until the next morning. There was some mix-up, right? So he get to medical, and then they said, oh, no, they're not going to do the lab work. So they get hot breakfast every day. And so he had already passed that time. But we still keep things like fruit and cereal that mm. they can have, right, in case anything's going on. So when I was briefed on it, I immediately went to the housing unit, and I spoke to the prison. I said, hey, I was briefed on what happened today. I said, if you're upset, I understand that. I said, and if you want to put in a complaint to your command I said feel free to do it I said I'm not stopping you that prisoner looked at me and said no ma'am you know you always take care of us and you know you come and talk to us all the time he said but I was good with cereal because I don't eat really heavy in the morning anyway but I told him I said okay I appreciate that I said but I just wanted you to know that if you decided to file a complaint it was no issue on me you mm -hmm. know or to me so um, so it's just important to have that type of report. And that same prisoner volunteered for the, um, we call it the outreach program. That's when prisoners stand up. We'll have units come in, and we'll give them a tour of the facility and then close it out with the prisoner talking to them, being honest about this is what I did, this is how it affects me and my family, this is how life is in the brig, da-da-da-da-da-da. You know, you get up early, hygiene, breakfast, work. You come in for lunch, you go back to work, that type of stuff. So... When a prisoner chooses to participate in the outreach program, that's a big deal because legally I cannot give that prisoner anything. I can't take time off the sentence. I can't give them extra visitation for that weekend or anything. So when they just choose to volunteer and do it, it means a lot to me. So the only thing I do is ask them for their appellate attorney's information, and then I would let the appellate attorney know, hey, look, can't give your client anything, but he volunteered once, two times, three times, whatever, to do the the brig outreach program. So he was telling Marines, don't follow in my footsteps. And that's a that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. But I also put rules on the unit though. You're not gonna embarrass that prisoner. You're not gonna ask super personal questions. And if they choose not to answer the question that you ask, respect that and just move on, right? So the prisoners know and I explain that to the prisoners in advance. I said, hey, one, I thank them for, I thank you for doing this. And two, just understand that the people that are attending, the service members, I'm not going to allow them to embarrass you. Yeah. So. I think that's, I think it's really important. I think a lot of times you lose sight of the fact that these are our people. Yeah. 
Um, granted, they've strayed quite, you know, in some cases very far or just circumstances being what they are. But at the same time, there's no reason to be allow them to be disrespected, disrespect themselves, right. disrespect each other, disrespect you, vice versa. I think that it's just treating people humanely and with dignity, regardless of the circumstance, I think is really important. Oh, certainly. And we're, and we're big on that. So whether the charge is UA, larceny, rape of a three-year-old child, murder, we, you know, we treat them with that dignity and respect. We had an Army Master Sergeant locked up when I was in Lejeune. His unit went to Panama to train, I think, for a year. And he was married, had a family, but he got involved with um, another female. And, you know, he murdered her oh. over there. That's that's one way to get involved. Right. <laughs> and uh, he, so we had him. He got 30 years. And Lejeune, the facility, only allows confinement for up to one year. So he was transferred uh, to Leavenworth. Then I got a call. Um, Army Corrections Command in uh, Arlington had asked me, you know, can I house Bo Bergdahl? Remember mm, him? Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. Yeah. So he never got awarded confinement at his court martial. Um, so he never came to my facility. But we work all these things out in advance. Um, and I told the Army, yep, I would take him, no issue. Um, so they just try to coordinate in advance because, again, that was another high-profile sure. one. And they want everything set and in place um, beforehand. So. Yeah. Wow, that's <laughs> so fascinating. Um, well, I was going to, you guys got anything else? Well, I was just, okay, so you've been at Lejeune, and wh where all have you, what all breaks have you been <laughs> uh, involved in, like, uh, served at? All right, so I started here at Quantico in 96, and I was privileged enough to come back and be the CEO, so I, I feel pretty good. So I did Quantico, did Lejeune, went to Okinawa after that, came back to Quantico, um, and then... I was at the staff academy, but then I selected for warrant officer and gunnery sergeant. Then I went to the warrant officer basic course. Uh, so I, then I went back to Okinawa. Then I came back, um, um, came back to Quantico. Um, then I went to the Navy brig in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, then I came back up here. All right, so kind of like well, I'm Quantico sorry, I came somewhere to else, Quantico somewhere else. So yeah, okay. Quantico was <laughs> the thing. So after yeah. Charleston, after the Navy rig, I'm sorry, I went to Lejeune. And then from Lejeune, I came up here okay. to the headquarters. So finished out uh, at the big shed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put in some miles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you got, uh, so you've had quite a few uh, respectful prisoners and stuff. Anybody that you're kind of stands out as making uh, huge strides in the right direction? Um, I remember in Okinawa, I was a staff sergeant, and I was a counselor. So within the corrections uh, field, you can have another job as a correctional counselor, right? And we assist them with paying bills, doing their program plan, um, and post-release post, uh, information, right? So a prisoner who was a sex offender that I worked with, so I gave him all the resources he needed, where he needed to go, you know, for treatment, groups, and all of that stuff. That prisoner figured out how to call the brig in Okinawa, and he called back, and he said, I just wanted to call and tell you that I did everything in my program plan. I got set up because that program plan involves where they're going to live, how they're going to support themselves, you know, so you have something like a letter from mom or dad or grandma. This prisoner will live with me upon release. And you have a letter of a tender of employment 
saying, I will employ this person. Da, da, da. So he, like I said, he figured out how to call overseas and he wanted me to know that he was doing everything his program plan called for and that um, he was glad I was hard on him because he seen on the outside what I told him. I said, the things you guys want to do in here, you want to talk back, you want to do this, you want to do that. You can't do that when you're working because you're providing for family, you know. So it's very different once you start working because employees aren't going to put up with that. Right, so, right. And then I've had prisoners just at different facilities, um, like the one I mentioned earlier, and just other ones that just say, thanks for making the rounds, or they'd volunteer to clean extra. Ma'am, you want me to clean your office, or you want anything done? Or I saw this outside, and I told the guard, like something hanging off the building, whatever. So having that rapport is just so important to me. And, and again, it doesn't mean I'm friends with the prisoners. It just means we communicate directly. There are no misconceptions on what I'm going to put up with, you know, because as a brick CEO, you have so much power, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For one, you can change their release date. If they're not behaving themselves, not following rules, you can take away the good conduct time that they get based on the sentence length, right? Plus, I can forward charges to the command. Whether or not the command actually cements that and add it to the results and, you know, add it to the charge sheet is, is different. But every time I've referred charges, they stug low. I always have video evidence and clear documentation, right? The other thing is we can control visits, phone calls, that type of thing. So when they're not being good, we can take away the personal visits and personal calls. Um, but we never cut off attorney contact, of course. Um, and then the other big thing is that we play a role in vacating a pretrial agreement. So if a prisoner has a pretrial agreement to just do five years instead of 15, and their behavior has just been negative, just not complying, just not adjusting to confinement well, uh, we can reach out to the unit and say, hey, we know he has a PTA. Here is everything that's been going on with them. And if the unit chooses, they can vacate that uh, that PTA. You know, so pretrial agreement is, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> what we took. You know, thing, so, thing and like that's here. the thing. It's You have a lot of power. We work. And we live to to get to that, but we don't ever let it um, get out of control. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, I guess one more question as we're kind of getting close to the end here. Yeah. Do you have any big plans for your second career coming yeah, up? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was wondering uh, what's next. What is next? Well, a um, lot of family time and friends time. Nice. Visits, world travels. Um, I love traveling. Um, any big targets? Just the countries I've never been to before, you know. So uh, so for us, like I told Vic, in the corrections field, you know, people say, oh, you go in the military, you'll have fun, you'll travel, you'll go to cool places. We have five spots you'll <laughs> ever go to, right? Yeah, we just went through the list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, all right, okay, Yuma, all right, Okinawa, Iwakuni, Pendleton, mm -hmm. Lejeune, and the headquarters. But, but anyways, um, just as many countries as I can that I haven't visited before. And um, I'm also going to volunteer. So I'm not going to rush and go back to work because it's hit me for 26 years. This is what my pace was. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And you had three brig CO tours. It's so, you know, so with the stress that comes with that. So for me, it's like I'm going to take several months or maybe a year off, but I'll also volunteer back at Walter Reed. Uh, they okay. mean a lot to me. Yeah. So, than a volunteer. Okay, there. that's awesome. Yeah, I think that that sort of a life hack um, is to take that time 
Um, and uh, yeah, sort of recharge your battery. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be in such a in a rush to to get back into the grind. See some beaches, see some mountains. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, just see some stuff. Yeah. yeah. I love getting out, so I look yeah. forward to that. Yeah, it's exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I guess the last question for me is, what can uh, people such as ourselves or like our our listeners do? Is there any like uh, like outreach programs that civilians do to help people in the brig, or like any like way to donate resources or stuff to them? Or well, I mean, people, you know, they'll reach out to the brig to volunteer. So whether it's um, on the religious side, you know, for example. You know, we had prisoners that um, they said, hey, I study Buddhism or I want somebody to come in. So, you know, working closely with um, the chaplain's office, for example, is great because they get the volunteers from out in town to come in and do things like that. But honestly, um, the prisoners unit is still responsible for them. They have family and friends. But um, it's certain things if if people reach out to the brig commanding officer and say, hey, this is who I am, this is what, you know, this is what I do, I'm willing to help with whatever, you know, then that's the CO's call then. But typically, um, even post-trial prisoners, right, so once they go to court and, a fi- and, er, and their trial is over, they're covered for two weeks on pay and stuff like that. But even after their pay stops, they get free um, health and comfort items, they get like five envelopes with stamps on it to write to family so and that's all in the budget you know so again it's they do have a lot at their disposal but you know any help somebody wants to offer they'll go to the ceo um you know see if it's needed (laughs) all right i think vic's got the ceremonial last question if he's ready for it (laughs) well actually this is sort of uh, this is i'm gonna i hate to nerd out a little bit here before we get into the final um but so one of my favorite movies of all time is dirty dozen (laughs) of course you know and they pull you know these ruffians out of the brig to do this special mission to um was it assassinate a bunch of um nazi leadership and they anyways is that even in the realm of the possible to do something as wild as that? Is to is there? Were there I guess in a more realistic term, is there any special cases where un, because they are still uniformed members of the like you said, still subject to UCMJ, still subject to the orders of the commanding officer, blah blah blah. Would there ever be an, a time where you would get an exception where someone would be pulled out of the brig to do anything other than what? you guys have already assigned them at the on the prisoner side yeah yeah so no they they're just on the rolls as far as manpower is concerned they're not worldwide deployable or anything like that right no they they're there to we got to make sure they get to court in one piece and that's what we do so yeah they'll leave the facility but it'll be to work you know so here in quantica i remember as a young marine we will walk them from the brig to the back gate picking up trash, um, and sometimes the unit will call. They'll say, hey, we got to move our office spaces to another building. They'll put in a request to have prisoners work. So, of course, we'll make sure that the unit provides the proper PPE. We'll give them the bodies, make sure they know, bring them back for chow, give them water, give them breaks, that type of thing. So you can use them for things like that. And, again, you know, when they volunteer for the prison outreach program, but typically we don't take them out. They're not going on special missions. 
No. <laughs> Vic, I think to answer your question from a historical perspective, uh, shit needs to be hitting the fan very, very hard <laughs> for yeah, that to even be considered. The, it was the like, most ridiculous question, but no, I just well, I had no, to ask. To be fair, I think I saw an article in Ukraine where they're like they're offering. I don't think not necessarily military prisoners, but prisoners. You know, if you want to serve your sentence on the front lines against. You know the Russian yeah, invasion. That's yeah, an yeah. option, but like I said, like so, I there's mean, some serious fan hitting that needs. To yeah, occur, things though. need to be going very <laughs> poorly for your military force for that to be even a consideration. No, trust fair me. Fair enough. They fair would enough. love to get out and go back and do things, but yeah. no, we yeah. don't allow that stuff so. yet. Um, so yeah, I guess my final question for you then: What is your most, what is your favorite memory in the Marine Corps? Man. That's tough. I've had so many, right? Right. It is um, hard. That's why I like putting you guys on the spot because <laughs> I know I can't answer this question really very well either. Right. So I just think in general, um, just the rapport that I've had with members of all services, right? So for me, it always kept me grounded. It always kept – it was so humbling because when I got somebody in a different service asking me to promote them, to retire them, to reenlist them, that is so – for me, it's just so heartwarming, right? So, you know, I, I used to say, you know, everybody don't have to be like me, but, you know, I just always see the fruits of that. And then, you know, even with my brother. So my brother um, was a gunnery sergeant. I got to retire him in 2018. Oh, that's awesome. So serving with, uh, thank you. So serving with him and my cousin, it was just so cool. So my husband, brother, cousin, and I, at points, we all served together, right? Um and you got about 70-some years of service. But um, <laughs> I think just the camaraderie, the rapport that I've built, because, you know, in one sense I'll say, well, you know, I accomplished some things in the Marine Corps that's unique and this, 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 and this, but, and that's good. But the interaction, the, the rapport that I've built with people, so it's just, it's so important, so heartwarming. And when I'm able to say, 26 years later I'm still in touch with those same people or somebody I met 20 years ago like the Okinawans in the yeah, break we yeah. still talk when they come to the states they'll visit when I go over for work I'll visit with them I always make time in the schedule so so just that I think um and then the close run up would be the things um I was lucky enough to achieve that uh, those milestones that were brand new to the Marine Corps yeah, corrections yeah. field. Your trailblazing, yeah. trailblazing. Yeah. I was about to say, <laughs> so great. Thank you. Well, this actually, has been. Oh, I want to mention you're actually a trailblazer on the podcast too, because you're a first female Marine, I believe. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, first wow. female Nancy's been on, Nancy's but first female yeah. Marine for sure. Oh, so, awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hopefully, uh, and same. Hopefully, many more to come. <laughs> yeah. But this has been yeah. so great. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come in. Again, congratulations on retirement. Thank, Thank you. you for such a wonderful career and all the service and everything that you've done for CORE and for the country. Um, this has just been such a treat. So thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank yeah. you guys for this having me. This You don't know how much this meant, and thank you for your service as well. Uh, you know, it's just heartwarming for me. So I appreciate the opportunity to come hang out and laugh with you today. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah. has been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank safe you. travels so. too, and please yeah. send us postcards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you can nice. find it, yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Do they just do I yeah, will. Is that a thing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess I'll wrap it up, wrap it up for us today. Um, 
disclaimer. Uh, none, of, none of our most of what we say are opinions or our own. Uh, yes. Our own fact. Uh, nothing we say reflects the Marine Corps Association stance on anything. So. Uh, that sounds like a good disclaimer to that me. That works for me. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks, everyone, for your time, and we'll catch you later. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye.